Good morning. Now let's see. I've got an hour and 25 minutes. All right. Now fasten your seatbelts. We're going to talk this morning about a topic that we have shared from the stage before. It's a hard topic, so I would ask for your quick prayer for clarity both in me presenting this information and you receiving it, you hearing it. We're going to talk about two questions that we've talked about before. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why <laughs> the lead pastor's already leaving? That's not a good sign. <laughs> and why do good things happen to bad people? Both of these questions are difficult in and of themselves. We saw last week when the Unruhs were up here on stage that bad things do happen to good people. But they responded appropriately, didn't they? They've given up their issues to God. Doesn't take them away, but it helps us understand what's going on. These two questions aren't unique to Christians alone. Everybody asks, why do bad things happen to good people? Why do good things happen to bad people? Now, this is where I'm supposed to insert a list of examples of bad things that have happened to good people here. And I know if we passed the microphone around, we'd probably be here long after an hour and a half about what bad things have happened to good people. I mean, we've got enough orthopedic issues in this crowd. We could fill a book. I know. We have stories about cancer, about ill children, about sick parents, about, well, the list just goes on and on. So let's talk about why that happens. How can God be a loving God and yet allow bad things to happen to good people? Or why does God let good things happen to bad people? Now, I don't know about you, but once in a while I get a little perturbed, a little upset when I see somebody, especially when it's somebody I know that I've been working on to get them in here. Somebody that's turned their back on God or never accepted God in their lives. But everything they do, they come out smelling like a rose. They're the CEO of a company. They drive a big fancy car that probably cost more than my house. They got friends galore, a pretty girlfriend. They have great friends. Wait a minute, let me back up. I'm not worried about whether or not they've got a pretty girlfriend or not. I've got a pretty girlfriend. She's not here with us this morning. But I married her 42 years ago, and I'm very happy with her. You ever seen anybody like that? Everything they touch turns to gold. Just doesn't matter what they do, how they act, how they treat people. It's just all these good things keep happening to them. Why? The real issue here is life's not fair, right? 
I mean, the problem with bad things happening to good people is that it's just not fair. Maybe our biblical worldview will help us understand this. Let's say there's a timeline that stretches out across the stage here. And what our worldview tells us is that before time began, we have, let's see how you're looking at it. Yeah. We have Genesis 1 and 2, the creation, the beginning. But right after Genesis 1 and 2, where God creates a perfect, fair, and just environment, where he loves the people that he's just created, he gives them the whole world except one tree. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. He has intimate communion with them. It's a perfect paradise for both God and the man and woman he's created. And that's the first two chapters of human existence. Now, after the second chapter, there's a parenthesis. And the reason there's a parenthesis is because of what happens in Genesis 3. What does happen? There's a coup, there's a rebellion. There's the entrance of sin into the world. And with that comes a judgment. Sin is judged. Mankind is kicked out of the garden. The tree of life is now guarded by cherubim. And what we have in the Bible and what we have in this experience, it's called the fall. We all know that. We live in a fallen world. The world that we live in is not the world God intended. The world that we live in is a fallen one. We live in a world where cancer, that has cancer, that has disease, we live in a world that does not reflect the goodness and the purity and the holiness of God, but it was allowed by God. God still loves those that he kicked out of the garden. God still wants that intimate relationship But sin has raised its ugly head, and mankind sort of chose sin over God, didn't he? So when God came to the garden and asked Adam and Eve where they were and what's going on, they responded, well, we knew we were naked, so we ran and hid. And how did they know they were naked? They sinned and ate from the tree. Isn't that what we do every once in a while when our behavior isn't quite what God wants it to be? And you can fill in the blank with whatever behavior you want. Maybe it's a good time to talk about cheating on our taxes. Ouch. Maybe the mileage that you put down isn't quite right. Maybe that tube of toothpaste that you wrote off as a medical necessity really isn't a medical necessity. I give my taxes to somebody to prepare for me. But I do pray for her when she does them. But isn't that what we do a lot of times? 
our behavior is based more on what we want instead of what God wants us to be doing. And God sees that surprise. He knows what we're thinking. He knows what we're planning. He knows what we're saying. He hears every word that we speak and every thought that we have. There's no way to hide from God. So again, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world that does not reflect the goodness and the purity and the holiness of God. So remember, we're inside that parenthesis. Now, if you stretch it out to the next parenthesis, you have the story of the Old and the New Testament, and we get all the way down here to Revelation 20. And then there's the other parentheses. Why Revelation 20? Because in Revelation 20, we have another judgment. God takes all the injustice and all the pain and all the bad things done to good people and all the good things done to bad people, and he takes the scales and he says that a day will come when he will make everything right and he will judge all humans of all time according to their works. And then we have the other parentheses, and the parenthetical clause ends, and on the other side of the judgment, what's there? Revelation 21. Have you ever read Revelation 21? If you haven't, you need to go home and read it. It's absolutely beautiful. In chapter 21, God says that there is a new heaven and a new earth, and it's perfect. A perfect environment. There's no pain. There's no tears. Everything will be as it should be again. And all questions like, do I buy my medication or do I pay my rent this month? You don't have to worry about it because in heaven you won't need your medication. And Jesus Christ has already paid your rent. And again, we need to remember that we live inside those parentheses. Now, God is just. God is fair. But we live in a fallen world where his justice is not meted out in the way that we would do it. We'd do everything differently, wouldn't we? Well, thankfully, he's a whole lot smarter than we are. He sees the whole picture because he's created it. And there are injustices. Life isn't fair. But that brings up the very important question, how can we trust and depend on a God where life doesn't seem fair? How can we learn to think clearly about what it means inside the parentheses of Genesis 3 through Revelation 20? How do we live this life and worship God who is just in the midst of this fallen world. Let's look at the justice of God. I'd like to look at Genesis 18, 20. The Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I'll go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. 
Great is our Lord and mighty is his power. He understand, his understanding has no limits. Now, you probably know the story of Abraham. You know he's a man of God. God's going to make a great nation out of him. And Abraham and his nephew Lot have built up their earthly holdings, their land, their, their cattle, their grain, their grain fields. And Abraham was gracious. He thanked God for all the blessing. Lot goes in the other direction. He chooses that area because it simply looks good. Abraham continues where he was, and God says, here's all the promises I'm going to fulfill for you. And where does Lot end up? In Sodom and Gomorrah. It's called Sodom and Gomorrah for a reason. It's sinful. It's evil. That iniquity rises up to God. And so the triune God determined that it's time to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And God says, how can I keep this from my servant Abraham? Now, they're, they're pretty tight. They've got a great relationship. God shares with Abraham a lot of thoughts, and Abraham responds back to God. And God tells him he's going to wipe Sodom and Gomorrah from the face of the earth. Everything, every living thing, even the vegetation, the grass, everything. And Abraham says, well, gracious God, you created everything. You created everything that exists. How can you, being that God, wipe out these cities when what if there's, what if there's 50 righteous people in, that town, in those towns? Will you destroy those righteous people? just to get rid of the evil? And God says, oh, I, I hear you. I understand. Okay, if there's 50 righteous people in Sodom and Gomorrah, I won't destroy it. Now, the words aren't scriptural. The story is scriptural. But Abraham and God start talking back and forth, and Abraham is negotiating for the righteous people that he thinks are there. Well, what if there's only five less than 50? And God says, okay, for 45 righteous people, I won't destroy the town. Well, what if, Father God, what if there's only 30 people? All right, if I can find 30, you see how this is going? It gets all the way down to 10. God says, all right, if I can find ten righteous people, I won't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But then it gets down to Lot and his family are in the town. And God, being just and fair, sends two angels and tells Lot to get out of town, literally. Get out of town, leave, run, you know, as a sideline, sexual immorality is the only sin that we're told, run from it. So it says, run, get out of town, go to the top of the mountain over there, run, go. And Lot 
being, I think, maybe just a little wimpy. He says, well, but the mountain is so far away. I mean, really? You want us to run all the way up there? Why don't you just let us go to this little town right over here, and that'll be good. So the angel says, all right, fine. Run, but do not look back. So, what happens? Somebody looks back. Lot's wife, as they're running, stops and looks back. Now, she doesn't become the salt of the earth, but she does become a pillar of salt. God said, don't look back. He's just. He gives us a command. He tells us what to do. He expects us to follow it. So justice is swift and fair as God destroys Sodom and Gomorrah, everything, every living thing, including the grass. It's swift but fair. Justice is not something, however, that God possesses. Justice is not an external standard that says this is right, this is wrong, this is fair, this is not. Justice is the very essence and nature of God's character. He is justice and all moral law. And all commands are merely a reflection of that justice in the character of God. Now what other ways has God revealed his justice to us in a fallen world so that we can trust him? He reveals justice through the natural order. Let's look at Romans 1, 18 through 20. From those verses we can see that this is right and this is wrong. God makes it clear to us. It's not a question. He makes it very clear to mankind. God also reveals his justice through the human heart. If we look at Romans 2, 15 and 16, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. He's written on our hearts the requirements of the law. So how can we say we don't know the difference? We have a conscience, and we know what's right, and we know what's wrong. And long before I became a Christian, and long before the Spirit of God was living in my life, I made a decision because of the death of my wife to turn my back on God. Not a real smart decision. But as a firefighter paramedic, I could do what I wanted. I could come and go as I wanted. I was pretty much the head guy. And I made some horrible decisions. Now, I had a conscience. I knew what was right and what was wrong. I willingly made those decisions because I had turned my back on God. But luckily for me, God never abandoned me. He never turned his back on me. He was always there. And later, when he woke me up, by hitting me upside of the head with a tuba six, he reminded me that we do live between Genesis 3 and Revelation 20 because 
That's what he had designed from one judgment to another. Now, inside that, and here's your English lesson for the day. Inside that parenthetical clause that contains all the Bible, except the first two and the last two chapters, is another parenthetical clause. Now, if there are any English teachers in here, thank you that you teach us this stuff. Parenthetical clause is a phrase that I didn't think I'd ever use. But because the English teacher whammed it into my head, the class clown, I know that's a shock. I remember that, and I remember that if you have a clause and you want to put another clause in here, you have to set it off with brackets so it stands out a little more. Well, listen to what's inside that, those brackets. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, I know you probably learned that verse way back in Sunday school. While I was teaching the middle schoolers, we pulled that verse apart a couple of times, and I hope you do the same, because if you look at that verse, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him will not perish. We won't perish. We're all biological material, right? We're all going to die. That's a given. Can't get out of that. Unless the rapture comes, and then we'll be up with God anyway. But we don't perish. We don't end up in hell. That is the perish. But we don't perish. We have everlasting life if we accept that free gift that God gave his only son. He loves the world and everybody in it so much and the people so much that he sent his son to die on the cross to become the sacrificial lamb for me, for you, an atonement for our sins. Romans three twenty five and 26 tells us that God did that to demonstrate his justice. The cross is God's justice in action. He's a creator of the cosmos, but he did that to show how much he loved us. He could have just winked or nodded his head and made our sins disappear, but God placed his own standard on himself. That's why the only solution for a relationship with God who is 100% holy is a sacrifice that is 100% holy. The reason that Jesus was fully God and fully man was that it could only be the death of God that could pay the price for our sins. But only man could die. God cannot die. And so, born of a virgin, fully man, fully God, without confusion, the Messiah comes, and when he hung up on the cross, he became for you and for me the payment for our sins. 
1 Peter 3.18 said, God once and for all has done what has drawn us to himself, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to himself, to God. God hates sin. He really hates it. And he wants an atonement. He needed an atonement for sin, and that's why he sent his son. How do you think God feels about all the sin that has infiltrated this planet and has caused all the heartaches, all the suicides, all the broken relationships, all the diseases that have caused this cancer to destroy the world that he made, the world that he loves, and the people that he cares about? The only solution for him to be just and holy, and yet to be loving and good, was to have his only son, the perfect sacrifice, hang on the cross. And as he hung on the cross, God turned away. He took his wrath and poured it all on Jesus. And all the just wrath of God was placed on Christ instead of us. The sin got paid for. And the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world, and we were justified. And the response is by faith to receive that gift, the gift of forgiveness. But st some still don't get it. We think God grades on the curve, right? And you get an 88. You got the best in the class. That's an A. The... 80% of you got 75, we'll call that a B. No, that's not how God grades. Here's how God grades. You get 100%, get 100%, you pass. You get 99.9, .9, you fail. His character demands that, and that's why it doesn't matter how many good deeds we do or how religious we are, how moral, we all fall short of the glory of God. And that's why we needed a Savior. And his, his Son, our Savior, that died on the cross, helps us regardless of what grade we have going in. We have 100% going out, and we pass. What I want you to hear about God's justice is that a day is coming where we all have to give an account. Now, I know one day I'm going to die. Bless you. Or the rapture's going to come, one of the two. And I'm going to be ushered into the presence of God. And not because of anything good I've done. I will because of the substitutionary death and atonement of, atonement of Jesus Christ. Having my sins forgiven then, I by faith receive that free gift as do you. There is a judgment that occurred and the judgment was my sins would never be held against me. However, when I meet Christ and I'm face down in the, no, I was going to say dust. I guess it would be gold dust, right? We'll be in heaven. But when I'm face down and I'm worshiping and praising him, and I'm thinking, I've got this list 
of questions. I want to ask him. I think he's going to say, you know, I've got a few questions for you. I gave you X amount of time on the earth. I gave you these spiritual gifts. I gave you these talents, these experiences. Now, I'd like to do a little inventory. What did you do with what I gave you? And I will hold you accountable. You were my steward. That wasn't your time. That was my time entrusted to you. Now, we're going to have a little evaluation time. If you used your time, your talents, your treasure with the right motives to honor me during this life, I want you to know that I have some rewards that you will enjoy with me forever and ever. And those things that don't quite measure up, well, you will have an experience of loss. We somehow think that we're trying to get this little ticket to get into heaven. What we don't realize is we've already got a ticket. Christ already paid the price. And on the other hand, people are usually afraid to talk about hell. And you know, hell's not a bad topic to talk about. God so honors, hear this, please. God so honors the dignity of people's choices that he has created a place where those who don't want to be around him get the opportunity to not be around him forever. And when you get right down to it, there's two kinds of people in the world. One group says to God, Thy will be done. I want to be with you forever. The second group of people to whom God says, Thy will be done. You get your way forever and ever. You've made the choice to ignore me. Now you get the opportunity to pay for that. I don't know where you're at in your spiritual walk or if you're on your walk. But if you have never received Jesus as your Savior, I want you to know that God is just. He is going to be fair. If you don't, want to ha- if you don't have a way to cover your sin, you'll get exactly what you deserve, and God will be fair. On the other hand, He has sent us His, sa- His Son, our Savior, and that's more than fair. We don't have to pay for our sins. Jesus Christ already did did it. We can choose to embrace Jesus today as our Savior rather than meet him later as our righteous judge. We should refuse to take revenge when treated unjustly. Know that God and God alone is judge. Life isn't fair, and we do live in a fallen world But God is holding the scales, and he'll take care of everything. Take comfort when you encounter injustice, knowing that God will balance the scales either in this life or the next. Meditate deeply on the reality of the judgment seat of Christ. Think about God's grace, his grace and his mercy. God's grace 
is him giving us what we don't deserve. God's mercy is God not giving us what we do deserve. His grace is his love, his mercy is his son. Now, I always like to give people an opportunity to come clean with God. There's a whole lot of space down here. And I know the Holy Spirit is tapping a few people and telling, telling us, I know he's telling me, there's a few things in your life that you haven't clearly given up yet. You don't have to come up here and shout them out, tell everybody what they are, but you do need to give them to God. And because of that cross, because of what Jesus Christ did, your sins will be forgiven if you ask for that forgiveness. So, as the band, as the worship team, the worship band plays this last song, I invite you to come up, raise your hands, or just kneel down and give up to God whatever it is that's holding you back. God's amazing grace will break the chains that are holding us back. I invite you to do that today. Please stand and sing with us.